Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, I'll be talking with Richard Wesley, the outgoing director of the Hong Kong Maritime Museum on Pier 8 in Central. In a moment, I also have a quick pre-Christmas chat with UK-based author Patricia O'Sullivan about her new Hong Kong book on criminal women, so stories of women committing murder and other crimes between the years 1841 to 1941. But first, to mark the passing of literary great John le Carré, the British author of espionage novels, here's Paul French with a Hong Kong snippet from John le Carré's The Honourable Schoolboy. A typhoon Saturday in mid-1974, three o'clock in the afternoon, when Hong Kong lay battened down waiting for the next onslaught. In the bar of the Foreign Correspondents Club, a score of journalists, mainly from former British colonies, Australian, Canadian, American, fooled and drank in a mood of violent idleness, a chorus without a hero. Thirteen floors below them, the old trams and double-deckers were caked in the mud-brown sweat of smuts from the chimney stacks of Kowloon. The tiny ponds outside the high-rise hotels prickled with slow, subversive rain. The junks were lashed behind the barriers and the Star Ferry had stopped running. A British frigate lay at anchor and club rumours said Whitehall was planning to sell it. The colony had come, therefore, for the journalists, an airfield, a telephone, a laundry, a bed. Occasionally, but never for long, a woman. Where even experience had to be imported. As to the wars, which for so long had been their addiction, they were as remote from Hong Kong as they were from London or New York. Only the stock exchange showed a token sensibility, and on Saturdays it was closed anyway. My thanks to Paul French for that reading from John le Carre's The Honourable Schoolboy. Paul French is the author of the prize-winning Midnight in Peking and City of Devils, a Shanghai noir. And I look forward to having him back on the programme to talk in more detail on John le Carre. A new book reveals details about women's lives in early Hong Kong, which are hard to find since their lives were usually confined to the home and family and were rarely made public. Those facts started to come out when author Patricia O'Sullivan started to delve into historic records, both in the courts and in Hong Kong's newspapers of the day, to research her new book, Women, Crime and the Courts, Hong Kong, 1841 to 1941. I asked Patricia O'Sullivan what first gave her the idea of writing about the territory's criminal women. Well, I didn't really mean to look at criminal women. I was coming across cases that my ancestors had prosecuted for the, the previous book, Policing Hong Kong, an Irish history, but also trying to work out how ordinary people lived, um, because you could find out loads about you know, the, the, the high ups who lived in government house or were on the peak or something like that, but not about the ordinary people, both European and Chinese, who lived, lived in the town. And so when I came across a case about a woman being brought up to the courts, you began to hear a little bit more about the way they were living and their situation. And so I realised that, that that was practically the only way I was going to find out anything about ordinary life for most of the people. Was through was, court was cases? Through court cases, wow. yeah. So what I mean, was this, very, the, sort of in terms of living living conditions, in terms of salary, in terms of poverty, probably? 
That's right. Education, what they were dealing with day to day, um, their interactions with other people, both as you know, servants and mistresses and things like this, who they were interacting with, you know, what shops they were going to, whatever else. And, Interesting. And yeah. I'm, so there is that. I mean, I haven't focused on that in the book, but that comes through all the time. You know, sort of the fraudster is trying to buy cakes from a shop with some dodgy 10 cent pieces, you know, and uh, before she was in the cake shop, she was in the sweetie shop and that sort of thing. So <laughs> you just begin to get the picture. Yes, indeed. In your book, you've got all sorts of different types of crime, including murder. And you also mm. see sometimes, I wouldn't say murder is ever justifiable, but self-defence maybe in certain circumstances. But you begin to sort of have a certain amount of, I would say, it's not always terrible women that, that sometimes you've got a certain amount of empathy with them. There are not a lot of terrible women in the book, really, um, to be honest. Yes, I did have quite a lot of empathy because so many cases, it's a question of poverty that pushes them towards these really heinous crimes. And it's a breakdown of their whole world and very often a lack of education. Um, so a lack of the you know, sort of understanding of what's going on and how they can actually make anything better. And the situation seems absolutely dreadful in that moment, but they've never been taught to stand back and think, well, is it dreadful just at the moment or is it dreadful completely forever and ever? <laughs> and yeah, awful things happened. And also in the heat of the moment, of course. So, Patricia O'Sullivan, you, you've uh, pre previously looked at the history of police here up until the 1950s. This was also based on your great uncle and uh, and indeed your grandfather, who both mm -hmm. were senior police here. But this Women, Crime and the Courts, Hong Kong, 1841 to 1941, looks at uh, a variety of, of crimes, as you say. And uh, so mainly from newspapers, mainly from court judgments, where, did, where were you finding them? They're mainly from the newspapers. Um, some of those cases were the subject of, of correspondence between the governor here and the colonial office in London. And some have appeared in some of the, the major histories. Norton Keish's sort of huge volume of a couple of volumes of the histories of laws and courts of Hong Kong. Um, <laughs> some of the very earliest ones are, are appear in there. You know, just as a sort of two-liner. <laughs> yes, and I think, I think also over the decades, uh, and we'll be going back to this in January, but I'd have thought over the decades also that, um, you know, the way that uh, these women often were written about in terms of in the newspapers would have varied uh, dramatically over the decades. Yes, indeed, it, it really did. I think what is, is, is quite interesting to see is that there is a developing understanding of the limitation of the lives of many women in Hong Kong by, by the courts, by the magistrates and by the, you know, the chief justices and, and very often. So I'm not saying that they should get a more lenient sense. No. But, but there is you know, developing, as I say, developing understanding of that. Now, as I say, we'll be doing a full interview on this in January, but I just wanted to give listeners a bit of a taste of your book before Christmas. And you've got A Murder in Aberdeen Harbour. Yes, and Murder in Aberdeen Harbour in 1923. This is this is a sort of one that sort of is the exception to what we've been saying about the development of understanding. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, a man named Wong Tai Hei, who is 
said to be an elderly boatman. Elderly might mean anything over 40, really, I think, at this point, um, in terms of what their, their, their descriptions. It was drowned, let's say that at any rate, when he went out on a boat with his wife, Chan Pak, and a younger man named Wong Yuk, and the daughter, perhaps of Chan Pak, perhaps of Chan Pak and Wong himself. So this is... This is it's typical. The English newspapers don't even give the names of these people. I had to go to a Chinese newspaper to get names at all. And even then, the stories diverge between what the, the Chinese newspapers have said and what the English language papers have said. Although, since the Chinese newspapers seem to, seem to get their information from the actual execution that resulted, I'm not really quite sure how reliable that is either. No, but so they went out and... At some point, Wong fell out of the boat, and the whole case rested on an elderly gardener who was going to notice from the shore. He was outside, he was on the shore, and he, he heard somebody calling out, save life, save life. And he looked up and, and saw a man in the water. And then he said he saw a boat come back, and the people in the boat appeared to push the man further into the water and then row off again. And that really was the entire prosecution case. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be anything else, except that when this elderly boatman rowed out to catch up with, with this boat and he got a, some more help, and they held on to the, the occupants of the boat, which were the Chan, the, the elderly woman, and Wong, the young man, and the, and the younger woman. And eventually the, the police were probably, the Aberdeen police came out as well and took custody of the, the group. Wong seems to be saying that, that the woman had told him to, to drown the man. Chan was saying, no, 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 we just had an argument. Of course, I didn't mean to do that. But exactly what had happened really remains a mystery. Um, <laughs> so, but, um, but the, the result was a man drowned. It was indeed, and the chief justice said there was no there was no way in which this could be considered a manslaughter. It was a murder or or nothing. And in fact, both Chan and Wong were sentenced to death. And Chan Pak became the first woman in Hong Kong to be actually to be executed. How she was executed by hanging in in the jail in the in Victoria Jail. She wasn't the first woman to receive a death sentence. That had already happened, and in both cases, the woman had been reprieved because she was pregnant. But Chan wasn't pregnant, so she and Wong were hanged side by side. And She apparently went to the gallows singing Chinese songs and really, really didn't seem to be afraid of death at all. Wong apparently reprimanded her for singing at such a moment. My thanks to Patricia O'Sullivan, the author of Women, Crime and the Courts, Hong Kong, 1841 to 1941, which is just coming fresh from the printers and should be available in Hong Kong around now or over the next week. I'll be rejoining Patricia early next year to hear more about Hong Kong's criminal women and to look at a couple more cases. So just a quick taster there. Patricia is the descendant of two Irish senior police officers who were here at the start of the 20th century. Her great-uncle, in fact, was shot and killed in the Gresson Street gang shootout of 1918. And you can find out more about that in Patricia's first book, Policing Hong Kong, An Irish History.
The Hong Kong Maritime Museum on Pier 8 in Central is dedicated to preserving, collecting and displaying objects that tell the story about trade and maritime history in Hong Kong and the Pearl River Delta. The museum is a non-profit registered charity founded in 2003 by members of the Hong Kong Shipowners Association and the museum opened in September 2005 at Murray House in Stanley and relocated in 2013 to Pier 8. For the final part of today's Hong Kong Heritage Programme, I talk with the Maritime Museum's outgoing director, Richard Wesley, who's returning to his family in Australia after 10 years at the helm of the museum. Well, I'm returning to Australia and get back to what I used to do, which was to be a museum consultant based in Sydney, working with local state governments, community organisations to do planning, curatorial so um, I did 10 or 15 years of it and I'm looking forward to returning to re-establishing my contacts and doing more heritage consulting. So that will also be back with your family? Absolutely. I think a lot of people who've worked in different parts of the world have been really badly affected by COVID, not only you know health issues, but the fact that people are just lack mobility. So in my case, it's just very difficult to have a, a family in different parts of the world and many people are in the same situation. So after 10 years in Hong Kong, it made perfect sense to hand over the reins to a new museum professional. Now, as Hong Kong Maritime Museum Director, you, ca- you started here in 2010. I did, and I went to uh, Stanley, where there was a wonderful gem of a museum. But like all things, its popularity was growing. It had about 40,000 visitors a year, and an opportunity arose to take on Pier 8, and it was a sense of growing the museum, getting a wonderful location on the edge of the harbour at Central, and to be able to extend the vision of the the board of directors. But I must say, the Maritime Museum version 1 in Stanley was a wonderful, wonderful asset and great credit to uh, Anthony Hardy and K.L. Tam and many other individuals who built the museum up with a, a nice team under Dr. Stephen Davies. And my job was really to take the museum from that location and move it to... Pier 8 and uh, usher in a new era, which I did, but it was three years of enormously hard work. Well, you've got a fantastic space here, as you say, on Pier 8. So what were some of the, when it moved uh, from Stanley to here, what were some of the, the big primary exhibits? Well, one of the interesting things was that because there was so much support was provided by the government and big shipping companies, we were able to actually acquire a great deal of material because if you can think of going from a small space to a large space, you actually do need to have material to exhibit. So a lot of stuff was acquired. For example, a a cannon from the Boca Tigris Fort. That's on sea deck. And that was one of the cannons that was taken by the British after the the Boca Tigris Fort fell, which ushered in the negotiation over Hong Kong becoming a colony of Britain. So that was an important acquisition, a number of very uh, important paintings. We also invested in new models and we got some lovely scrolls to do with piracy at the turn of the the, uh, 19th century. So it was a wonderful time to strengthen our holdings and fortunately we had the resources to do it and to then present them to the public in an interesting way. So we were very grateful for that uh, opportunity between uh, 2010 and about 2014. 
I was going to say between uh, 2010 and 2020 also, I mean, in terms of what you put online and, and the, the sort of, um, surely internet input has, has also changed during that time. The thing that people realise uh, in the museum world is that you get a certain number of people who physically come to the museum, but there's a vast world out there of people who can't visit, but they can access your collections digitally and we've spent uh, a lot of time, and I've got to say fairly in a pioneering way, working with the Google Cultural Institute, our own website, uh, getting content on display, online exhibits, media presentations, writing articles and getting them online as resource material for schools and um, interested persons. Not only to get the message out to as many people as possible, but to... Uh, remind people and pr promote the work of the museum and to encourage people to donate to the museum, to study maritime history and, and generally to appreciate the work of not just our museum but uh, all museums. And so we've also had a, a profile of trying to get um, maritime stories into the extended maritime stories into the uh, media and in, in this office itself we've done a lot of work promoting maritime archaeology, for example, and some of the finds that we've worked with the Hong Kong Underwater Heritage Group, such as we've retrieved a couple of carronades and uh, an anchor stock, which is uh, over a 1,000 years old. What's a carronade? Um, a carronade is a, is a, a cannon. Uh, it was a short barrel cannon which was used to basically uh, fire at opposing ships with a lot of loose shot. So it was used to bring down rigging and kill the sailors on board as against standing off with a long cannon and just knock a few holes in the side of the ship. So these are all very prevalent in the, uh, on military vessel, naval vessels in the uh, 18th and early 19th century and some of them were thrown overboard for whatever reason or lost at sea. So it's good to retrieve these things. They tell an in, give an important insight into the colonial past of Hong Kong. Yes, I've been here to the Maritime Museum and stood outside with conservator Paul Harrison while he's cleaning up the metal on a, an old cannon or the stone on a Song Dynasty anchor. Absolutely, and there's a lot of hidden work that goes on in museums and it's very interesting work and we're fortunate to have specialists such as Paul to work on our collection and there are other people, there's a lot of expertise in the Hong Kong community and all sorts of areas, uh, maps, um, conservation, research, identifying historic pictures. Museums can't have all the answers. We need to reach out to the community and use that knowledge and document that knowledge. And there's some wonderful um, initiatives right across the community that promoting heritage and we, we like to work with partners. So it's a, it's a shared partnership to... Um, preserve and present our heritage. Yes, because you do work with, uh, there's a Hong Kong U group as well of yes. marine scientists. We, we work uh, with SWIMS, which is the, basically the Hong Kong Marine um, uh, Institute. So they do some wonderful research work and we can't employ research scientists, but we can communicate to the public what some of this research has uh, identified and um, obviously students and young people and families love to talk to uh, scientists and they provided a number of support programs for us over the years and we continue to use the skilled people at SWIMS and uh, also uh, scientists and ecologists that are employed by WWF and 
other organisations because one of the great things about museums is that we're a we're a public space and we're a, we're a, we're a, like a town hall where all sorts of issues can be aired and discussed and it's a it's a wonderful resource for the community and I think this is truly perhaps the most important role for museums is to be a, a community forum to reflect on uh, our heritage and our natural environment and discuss ideas. Now, over the years when I've come here to, to talk to you and some of the curators about exhibitions, I remember a superb one on silver yes. and the whole uh, silver trade, you know, Canton trade paintings, as it had been all sorts, and, I, and the scroll that you describe was uh, the, of the piracy. With n money, no object, what kind of acquisition would you like to see for the museum? Uh, well, that's that's uh, you've got me on the spot. That's um, that is a bit of a um, a fantasy. I, I it would be wonderful to create a situation where several uh, historic vessels could be preserved and enhanced. And it's been always been my dream to have a sort of an area, an historic fleet area, perhaps at somewhere like the One Shy Cargo Handling Basin, and not necessarily to own these historic vessels, to, but to have a place where people can view them and uh, admire them because the thing about vessels especially wooden vessels is that they're very very precious and they're disappearing and there are still a number around uh, Hong Kong uh, and they survive because of the good efforts of their owners but uh, I think the museum should play a bigger role in trying to protect our floating heritage because much of it has been lost and if you reflect on the vast numbers of fishing junks for example mm. that were in Hong Kong as late as the um, 1980s, I think of um, Aberdeen, for example, most of those vessels have completely disappeared because they've got no economic purpose. So if we can work with organisations and individuals to provide a useful economic use, I think that's that would be very helpful for our future. But there's always paintings and uniforms and uh, all sorts of material. But it's very important to actually run programs. I mean, museums are about objects, but they're also about ideas and activities. And uh, to be able to fund people to run education programs and to nurture young minds um, is, is probably where we should be devoting our, uh, some of our resources in the future. What about raising the Tamar? Well, the Tamar is a long... Uh, I don't know whether we can raise the Tamar. I, I think the, the interesting thing about the Tamar is that there is the the remains of the frame and the keel which have been identified by the maritime archaeologists and there's a lot of innovative ways uh, that things can be dis displayed and it would be wonderful to turn something like that into a public sculpture to really just to reflect on all those vessels that um, have kind of used to populate the harbour but have long disappeared. Now that's obviously a dream but it's worth kind of thinking about because we've got a lovely public space along the waterfront and we need to have interesting things on it. There's any, uh, one thing that's recently come up is to have one of the um, early hydrofoils which has gone out of service and that could be taken out of the water and turned into a, a museum asset and you think of the Alexander Grantham. People probably thought that was a crazy idea 30 years ago but the History Museum did a fantastic job of preserving it and interpreting and explaining it and it makes a wonderful asset and there are other assets like the, the hydrofoils which were an amazing piece of technology to get a jet engine 
and to cross over to Macau in double quick time. This is truly innovative and it's good to be reminded and as uh, vessels come to the end of their natural life there is an argument to to make them available for the public at least uh, one or two the same goes with uh, star ferries i mean hopefully they'll long continue but several have been taken out of service and again there was a proposal for one of them to be put on land but sadly it didn't progress so if there's a dream that's perhaps a big part of it Interesting. Yes, I think so. Because as you say, there is this wonderful maritime heritage that exists in Hong Kong, with the, the, but some of it, as you say, it's a matter of financing and it's a matter of grabbing that opportunity at that time to ensure that these old boats are restored and uh, used for a, a new purpose. Are you a purist when it comes to heritage? I mean, like, for example, it's a different kind of example, but, uh, you know, Stanley Police Station was turned into a welcome. There's some others that have had less of a crossover than that. But do you feel like if you took a star ferry that it uh, has to be a star ferry in its new form? Well, this is a great challenge that faces anybody in heritage conservation. The governments haven't got bottomless pits of money. Uh, and preserving old things is expensive. So ideally, you find some sort of community use that uh, generates an income without destroying the integrity of the asset. And, you know, you could say um, putting, a, putting a little restaurant into an old staff ferry might be a travesty, but if it preserves it and there's not major damage done to the, the fabric of the staff ferry, it could be a good solution. I think people do need to think outside the box and be a bit flexible because the, what often happens is the, the perfect becomes the enemy of the good and the object just disappears. And there is an enormous amount of heritage expertise. A lot of people who know how to work with heritage in a sensitive way and I think that's really the issue, that whatever you do, you think about it carefully and what you, the sort of things you do are reversible. So I'm not a purist in that sense, I'm more a pragmatist, but you need to have skilled minds and, and thought and put the object first rather than the dollar. And you, you can, there's many examples around the world of very good conversions of heritage assets into things which are given a new life. And I think that has to be the future. Now, from a heritage perspective also, or, the work, or from the perspective of the work that I do, I remember coming here to have a go on your uh, ship bridge simulator. Yes. And, uh, and that was, that's actually run by an ex-working captain. Yes. The bridge simulator is a major asset to the museum, and it's the flagship of another important objective for the museum which is to promote an understanding of the importance of shipping in a port city like Hong Kong and the importance of shipping globally to the movement of goods across the ocean in an economical and safe way. And there's an enormous amount of technology associated with the shipping industry in terms of the size, the skills that are required and the shipbridge simulator, which is industry standard, really explains how complex it is to control what are effectively the largest man-made objects in the world. If you think of a big bulk carrier, there's nothing much bigger in the world. And to control such an asset from a, from a bridge is a, an amazing responsibility and it requires an amazing amount of highly developed technology. And part of the role of the museum is to explain that and to encourage students coming forward to consider 
the shipping industry and the logistics industry as, a, as an important career, which can involve lawyers, it can involve engineers, it can involve people in the food industry, it can involve meteorologists, mathematicians, mapping the use of fuel to uh, maximise uh, usage of vessels. And it's our job, one of our jobs, is to explain that to the public. And the best way to do that is by putting young people in contact with people who work in the industry and who've committed their lives, their working lives, to the shipping industry and the logistics space. And we enjoy doing that, and that's why we we work very closely with uh, the government in terms of Maritime Week, which is um, a sort of Hong Kong-wide explanation each year of, of how the industry works. So that's also very important, and it's no secret that a lot of the the great uh, Hong Kong's great shipping companies support the museum and are very generous in their support. And at the museum, we all believe very much in, in the importance of shipping and the contribution it has made to Hong Kong and will continue to make uh, to Hong Kong in the future. After 10 years, you're heading off to Australia. Your successor will be coming shortly. How do you see the work of the Hong Kong Maritime Museum going forward? Uh, well, hopefully um, full steam ahead. We, we live in difficult times in that every community organisation, every cultural institution has got to fight for resources. I'd like to think that the Maritime Museum has a good reputation, both locally and internationally, as an organisation which is open, transparent and is engaged in telling stories about ships in the sea and the, the people who work in the industry that uh, it's an institution which is concerned about the fate of the oceans and in particular is promoting all things designed to protect and enhance our wonderful maritime heritage. My thanks to Richard Wesley, the outgoing director of the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. Thanks for listening, have a good Christmas and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>